Hey there, welcome to the Untangled Faith Podcast. In honor of the Christmas season and in order to allow myself a much needed break, I'm sharing my most downloaded podcasts of the year throughout this month. For those of you who are new to the podcast, this may be the first time you've listened to this episode. Over the summer, the Shiny Happy People docuseries released, and so many of you were watching it and processing it. So I did a two-part podcast series on it, and it quickly became one of the most downloaded podcasts I've released. I was able to twist the arm of two of my friends to join me for this conversation. It's been downloaded more than 2,700 times, and I've had so many people message me about how this conversation resonated with them. Here's the first part of that conversation that I first shared at the end of June of 2023. Just a quick note at the beginning of this episode to let you know that today's content is not safe for young children. We cover some heavy topics, and I'm certain a few cuss words survived the final edit. I also wanted to let you know that we cover the topic of abuse and understand this could be triggering for some listeners. Please take care while listening. In early June, shiny, happy people, Duggar Family Secrets, debuted on Amazon Prime. It reached more viewers in its first nine days than any Amazon docuseries. Journalist Salome Halu reported in an article for Variety that measured over the same nine-day period, the series has been responsible for the acquisition of more new Prime Video customers than any other Amazon docuseries. While many have been drawn to watch this docuseries because of interest in the Duggar family, once they turn in, they get an education on an organization the Duggars have been closely tied to. And that organization was founded and led for many years by a man we now know to have been credibly accused of the sexual assault of multiple young women, among other abusive behaviors. On today's episode, I will share some of the history of that organization and some stories from those who participated in one way or another with this community. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. For the benefit of my listeners who come with various levels of knowledge, I'm going to approach today's episode content as if most of you are unfamiliar with the organization which goes by the name of the Institute in Basic Life Principles, or I-B-L-P for short. In 1961, William W. Gothard Jr., we'll call him Bill, like everyone else who knows him does, started an organization called Campus Teams. That name changed to the Institute in Basic Youth Conflicts in 1974. That was two years prior to my birth. And later, they changed their name a final time to the Institute in Basic Life Principles. According to the IBLP website, the first basic youth conflict seminar was conducted in the Chicago area in 1965 for 120 students, and that seminar focused on tracing conflicts in key relationships to the violation of basic principles found in scripture, and presenting practical steps of action to achieve success and fulfillment in life. The too-long-didn't-read summary is this. If you're experiencing conflict in your relationships, you have violated basic scriptural principles. Follow these steps that Bill lays out for you that he claims are from scripture, and you will be successful. 
Gothard has been preaching his own version of the prosperity gospel for quite some time. In the following years, attendance climbed to between 10,000 and 20,000 youth and adults per seminar. In 1976, Character Sketches Volume 1 was released. You may have had it in your home library like I did. It was a beautiful leather-bound book that attempted to explain the character of God through short stories about animals and nature. In 1984, IBLP launched a homeschool curriculum, the Advanced Training Institute of America, another acronym for you to remember, ATIA. And imagine my surprise and curiosity when I stumbled across this particular milestone featured by the IBLP organization on their website. According to the website, in 1986, the Financial Freedom Seminar was presented by realtor and business owner Jim Sammons of Dell City, Oklahoma. The 16-hour video seminar developed from the presentation has helped thousands of people avoid and solve financial problems by understanding what the Bible teaches about money. That is straight from the IBLP website. I know what you're saying. That Jim Sammons dude sounds a lot like Dave Ramsey. And why are you giving us a history lesson about a random business dude from the Midwest? We want to hear about the shiny, happy Duggar family. I'm so glad you asked those questions. Number one, yes, Jim Sammons does sound quite a bit like Dave Ramsey. And two, I'm telling you all about the IBLP organization that was founded by Bill Gothard because you can draw a straight line from the Duggar family to IBLP. If you're familiar with the Duggar name, it's likely because you've watched or at least heard of the show 19 Kids and Counting, which aired from 2008 to 2015. The Duggar parents are Jim Bob and Michelle Duggar, and their children are Josh, Jana, John David, Jill, Jessa, Ginger with a J, Joseph, Josiah, Joanna, Jedediah, Jeremiah, Jason, James, Justin, Jackson, Johanna, Jennifer, Jordan, and Josie. Over the years that 19 Kids and Counting was on the air, Jim Bob and Michelle talked openly about their involvement with IBLP and brought to the mainstream audience the legalistic principles they followed that they tied to their Christian faith. The girls all had long hair and long skirts and dresses. They were huge proponents of courtship instead of dating. They also shared about being against any form of birth control. And the list goes on. What many viewers of the series may not have known at the time was that these were all ideas straight out of the IBLP seminar training book. And I'd argue that you would be hard pressed to argue in good faith that a lot of Gothard's rules were actually backed by scripture. In 2014, the board of directors of IBLP placed Gothard on indefinite administrative leave while investigated claims of sexual harassment. Later, they announced that he had acted in an inappropriate manner and was no longer allowed to serve in any counseling, leadership, or board role within IBLP. Here's what you need to know. As many as 34 women who worked for Gothard, and probably many of them were minors at the time, have now claimed that he harassed them. Due to the statute of limitations, legal action against Gothard was voluntarily dismissed, but the survivors still stand by their allegations against him, and some of these accounts are discussed in the recent Shiny Happy People docuseries. In 2015, TLC canceled 19 Kids and Counting after the public learned that the oldest child of Jim, Bob, and Michelle, Josh, 
had molested five underage girls. Some of those girls were his family members when he was between 14 and 15 years old. Based on documents requested under the Freedom of Information Act, it appears very likely that Jim Bob and Michelle were aware of Josh's assault from very early on, and they sent him to a program affiliated with Bill Gothard and IBLP to rehabilitate him. Let's fast forward to today. And we find Josh is currently in prison, sentenced to over 12 years due to being recently convicted of receiving and possessing child sexual abuse material, also known as CSAM. To say there are some serious issues with the IBLP organization would be one of the world's greatest understatements. I recently sat down with two of my friends to ask them about their own experiences with the IBLP organization and to ask what their thoughts were of this recent docuseries. The influence of IBLP isn't contained to the Duggar family, and I think you'll recognize the Gothard influence in much of the American evangelical church, and that is one reason I believe this conversation is so crucial. After watching the Shiny Happy People docuseries, I knew I wanted to talk to people that had been influenced by the IBLP world, so I put out a call on social media for stories. My email inbox was flooded with messages. And so because I didn't have time to vet everybody, I just decided to reach out to two people that I already know in real life. I am thrilled to introduce you to my friends, JJ Merrick and Christina Kalman. Now, the way this episode is going to work is I am going to sort of jump in and out between my interviews with JJ and Christina. They did not sit down with me together, and that is clear in this audio as you listen. But I just wanted to let you know that there will be a bit of jumping back and forth between the conversations I had with each of them. And we're going to start out with a clip of me talking with JJ Merrick. Here we go. We're here today because like the hottest thing on Amazon Prime right now is shiny, happy people. I watched it. I have some like tangential connections to the IBLP Gothard world. Uh, the, the conferences that were happening in the 70s and the 80s were a really big deal. And it was the Institute for Basic Life Principles. It was, was it conflicts to start so with? It started out with, it was IBYC. So Institute of Basic Youth Conflicts okay, was youth the original. Conflict. Okay. And then sometime in the late 80s, it changed to Basic Life Principles because I guess the idea between youth conflicts was like, didn't yeah yeah my mom had gone to one of the conferences uh, we had a really big red binder in our house full of all of the things so many and they were big binders. they were really nice binders like my parents were brand new believers in the in the late 70s and they're like we want to do the right thing and here this guy has some of the answers we had the character sketchbook <laughs> listeners there's these these volumes of books that were like like moral stories that had beautifully to do with animals. Done. They I, I were will say, beautifully leather done. bound, gold trim, beautifully. Like as a child, I used to just go through those. Yeah. I've yet to, as an adult, go back. And I, I do have friends because yeah. there's a Facebook group that, that does, has gone back and looked at those and are horrified at it. So I need to go through and see like, <laughs> but I just remember the pretty pictures. Like they were wonderful. Some of you may have these books. Some of you may yeah. not even know that they are connected with, um, with this program or this organization. <laughs> a, a side note that's really funny. Uh, we, somebody found one in a movie. Like it was like on a shelf and they screen capped because I've been in this ATIA recovery group on Facebook sure. for probably mm -hmm. 10 years. And someone's like, well, this was funny. And 
you know, the only thing we can think of is somebody found them at like a Goodwill, like props departments do that all the time yeah. where they're just like, and they, they look cool. And they're like, I wonder how, what the story is of this book getting into the background of some movie and they took a screenshot of it. And it's like, yeah, that, 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 that tracks. So everybody's talking about this docuseries. It is crazy popular. Some people are like, have no idea that it was a thing. And then there are a good number of people in our lives that are like, oh yeah, this, this is, is a thing. And it has impacted the white evangelical world in ways that we probably don't even realize. Um, There's a lot of extra rules that were um, tied into this. And so I reached out and I was like, I want to have a conversation. And then I got a huge response. Lots of people were open and I'm like, maybe I'll start with some people that I have a connection with first of all. (laughs) So. Uh, Yes. There is a lot of stories and you know, because of it being a kind of this parachurch thing, yeah, you'll you'll meet a lot of different people who have different flavors of it. And and you know, you could have been totally all in where your parents were in it, or you had one parent that really kind of wasn't into it but said it, and that's kind of how our story is. So I'll just start from the beginning. Yeah, um, let's hear your story. You know, I, I'm a seventies baby, born in seventy nine. So I my parents moved to Fort Worth, Texas in nineteen eighty five. And prior to that, my dad was a youth pastor and I was born in Fort Worth um, and he had gone off to um, really large Southern Baptist churches. Uh, he went to Southwestern Seminary um, and was at with Tom Elliff at, uh, oh, uh, in Tulsa. Um, and then down to Oklahoma City. And then we ended up at Birchland Baptist with Miles Seaborn. Um, and IBLP, IBYC at the time, would kind of connect with larger churches in different areas because they did these conferences, as you had mentioned, they'll go to a town, they'll fill an arena, you know, and and they would come to Fort Worth and have these massive conferences and all these churches would get together. It was more than a day. Wasn't it like more than a week? It was usually a week. Like I want to say it was like maybe four or five days. Like it was this whole, and you would go at night. I remember as a child at that time, I don't think they had any children programming, but we would go to church and we would stay in the gym. I have this very specific thing. So I remember one year I had chicken pox and I couldn't go. And I was like, so sad. Like I was probably like six, but we would go to church and stay. Then the parents would go downtown because uh, Birchman was probably 20 minutes from downtown and then come back and pick us up. And so they would use the nursery for that. But you would have these things and they would go and they teach you all of this stuff. And you'd have this manual and you'd have different conferences. And, you know, it was it was pretty basic, very conservative viewpoints of things and patriarchal authority, all of that stuff. And then eventually it grew into, well, those types of people that it started to attract were the kind of the people who wanted to homeschool. And Gothard, Bill Gothard, who runs the program, realized that this is something that is a big thing. So they came out with a homeschool material and created at the time was called ATIA. So the Institute advanced training Institute of America, as someone said in the documentary, Gothard was, would never let an acronym go by. There were so many acronyms. <laughs> my parents, my dad actually had ATIA as our license plate at one point. So oh, that JJ. Was, that was, that was. Do you have funny. a picture? Uh, somewhere. I think he still has it. And yeah, that was, it was fine. Um, so that was probably around 1985, 86. I was in kindergarten. Like I, I've been homeschooled my entire life. And so we started from the beginning there. I have an older brother who's seven years older than I am. And then I, there are six kids in my family. 
Um, and so my mom started homeschooling us and we had a weird dynamic because my dad was a youth pastor in a Southern Baptist church, you know, granted conservative, you know, fairly conservative Southern Baptist church in Texas. Um, but you know, youth ministry is youth ministry. And, you know, he utilized the tools of youth ministry. There was music, there was all these things, you know, and my dad had a picture of him and Amy Grant on his wall. It's one of his most cherished possessions. So like there was this weird dynamic of my dad doing all these things at church. And then all of a sudden we're kind of diving into this homeschool thing. Now, as a kid, I didn't know like what was going on. Like I, you just kind of do it. Um, this is your homeschool program. You know, yeah. your, your math books come from Bob Jones. Like, yeah, it's like, I look back on it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, what kind of education did I have? If <laughs> any, really the education part, my mom was really, you know, really did it well starting off. Um, there was this other caveat that my mother was diagnosed with MS uh, mm. when right after I was born. So from about 1979, 1980 on, uh, for the first 12 years till about 91, 92, she was just kind of your normal MS type patient where she would have an attack every once in a while. She'd be in the hospital and things were fine. She worked as, an, as a nurse uh, outside the home prior to her homeschooling us because then they don't allow that in the homeschool programming. So she kind of retired and gave that up. And by that time she had had four, she had four kids and just naturally didn't want to do that. And yeah, we were just, we were in the program. We were doing our thing. Um, come 92, uh, my parents, uh, my mom had her sixth child after the fourth, they told her don't have any more kids. Mm -hmm. She said, I don't care. Uh, she had the fifth one and then the sixth one. And by that time she had her MS had progressed to the point where she just was in a wheelchair at that point. You know, I say all that because eventually my education or our education went by the wayside. So while we were involved with ATIA about 1992, it just kind of started to fall apart. Um, my dad really wasn't into it. My mom wasn't really able to educate us. But what then created was this weird dynamic of they were unwilling to accept help from anything. We were living mm -hmm. in Missouri. There weren't really a lot of things. So us kids had to take care of everything. And so from about 11 years on, I learned to cook. I was the cook in the family. I fed everyone. I did all of that. Um, and we had to take care of my mom. My dad was trying to, he was working in a church. He was also working on his doctorate at the time. Um, took him 10 years to do it. He was doing his thing. We were trying to stay home. And we basically didn't get, I didn't get an education past eighth grade. One of the people that won the lottery of having me reach out to them and ask them to be part of this episode is my college friend, Christina Kalman. We have known each other for several decades, and I'm so grateful that she's been willing to share part of her story. <laughs> um, so uh, my parents attended a seminar before I was born. Um, so they were familiar. I mean, who did you have the big not... red binder in your house? Absolutely. Yeah, we, <laughs> we had did the character too. sketches. <laughs> we had the red books. Um, and then later on, you know, we had all of the other resources as well. But I think my first experience was we went to Christian school all through elementary school. And um, fourth grade, we switched to um, a second Christian school and we met my friend Molly. We were friends for one year. And she started homeschooling in fifth grade and we missed her very much, my twin sister and I, and we stayed in contact and she started homeschooling. So I can't remember what year this was, um, 86 maybe. Okay. 
I was about 11. So if you're 10 in fourth grade, 11 in fifth grade, something like that. Yeah. Well, and note for the listener, there was not a lot of homeschool options out there. So if you were going to homeschool, there's like two things or three things you could choose from. Yes, exactly. And a lot of the options were um, just curriculum used in Christian schools. There wasn't maybe a lot of support that I'm aware of attached to those curriculums. So our friend, we stayed in contact with her in fifth grade. Um, we finished sixth grade at that Christian school. Um, and uh, I'm not sure at one point, my sister had to remind me of this. She was like, Christina, we're the ones who asked We I knew, I remember that we had asked to homeschool. We went to a school that was about a half hour away. And so our connection to our friends there weren't super close. Yeah. Um, because you know, you're not going to have overnights and, and stuff, um, when you live a half hour away. So we just didn't connect. We were more conservative generally compared to some of our friends at school. Um, and so I think when we found out Molly could do her work at her house in her (laughs) bed or on the front porch, we imagined sitting on our hammocks facing Lake Laconia, reading our science curriculum, you know, and that would make it way more interesting and getting done by 10 o'clock in the morning. Exactly. Getting done as you know, we were good students. And so my sister recently reminded me that we actually asked to be in ATIA because we wanted to be with Molly. We thought, oh, that would be fun. Maybe we could do things together. Sure. Now for a quick break. Not long ago, I made a decision that changed my life and my relationships. I started going to counseling and I'm so glad I did. If you've been considering getting started with counseling, faithful counseling makes it so easy to get started. I know you don't like talking on the phone, so it's good news that you can start the process without even picking up the phone to talk to someone. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. It is also brought to you by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Fill out a questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Now back to the show. Well, I was in, we were in this ATIA thing. I really saw it from a distance, okay. and I'm, I'm going to really speak to it, because we didn't end up at the training centers, but my friends did. Um, we didn't go because we had to take care of my mom. I wanted to go. I wanted to be involved in all of that. I wanted to be in the alert program like mm. it was nobody's business. Uh, that type of stuff was so cool to me, this thing. Now, I look back, and we'll talk about alert. They literally have this paramilitary organization that is like – Boy Scouts on steroids. And oddly enough, the center that they do it in is in the northern woods of Michigan. And so about 1995 was when it was really big. And the Oklahoma City bombing happened. And all of a sudden, everyone's talking about these northern Michigan militias. (laughs) (laughs) Alert was basically a northern Michigan militia Mm -hmm. that they were out there training in the fields alongside other north Michigan (laughs) So what was your understanding of what they were being trained to do? Well, they were like, they kind of told us this whole bit on like, you know, your warriors for God and it's, it's all these things, but 
you know, their whole stance on, on, on post high school. And I wouldn't want to say post middle school education really is apprenticeship. And that's what it's all based on. And they kind of talk about this in the, the documentary, but what they would do is they would kind of convince you that college isn't really a thing, mm-hmm. which I, I, I agree now I mean, <laughs> we can look back on that, but in the mid nineties, like you went to college, like, like that was what you did. Like you weren't going to get a job. You weren't going to do anything. So what they were, their whole stance was basically you're going to homeschool through college, but you're going to do that by apprenticing and doing that. That's what happened to me in that my parents were like, well, it's okay that you're not getting an education. We're going to make you apprentice. So I was in the computers. So at the age of 16 years old, I was working at the seminary my dad was at making literally five fifteen an hour minimum wage fixing computers. Now for a 16 year old kid who loved computers, that was amazing to me. And I didn't really want to go do the math and stuff. Like most high schoolers wouldn't if given the opportunity and yeah. said, Hey, you don't have to do all these other things that are going to make you whole as a person and make you better, you know, education and, and, you know, actually read literature books. Like because of this whole apprenticeship thing, they created the alert program as just one sector of that. Like you're going to go and you're going to learn and you're going to learn all these skills on whether you want to become a policeman or you want to be, you know, not necessarily military. I don't really know what their stance was on like the actual military. Like it was to create this thing. And then you would go off and, I don't know, save the world and help in, in disaster recovery or really, I don't know. It looks really cool to me. And they'd have these guys show up at Knoxville, which they kind of mentioned Knoxville. Knoxville was the annual conference that they would do every okay. year in the summer. And so Knoxville was the big thing. It was a, it was at UT <laughs> and the, the bowling arena or whatever. And we maxed it out. And every year you would go there and it was a party for us because we got to see all of our friends. You know, we would, we, we would literally, there was, we knew someone who lived in Knoxville or somebody we knew lived in Knoxville in this large house. And there was like 10 families from Fort Worth and we would all stay at this house, like sleeping on the floor. Wow. And you know, this was like in a neighborhood outside of Knoxville and it was this huge party. It's like a family reunion. Yeah. And it was fun. Like when you're a kid and you go do that, you see it and you show up and you, you listen and you sing in a choir and you wear your khakis and your, you know, your white shirts and you, you do your thing. And looking back on it now, it's like, man, that was, that's scary. <laughs> like, all the things, but every year they'd have the alert guys show up in their blue and whites and, and with the flags. And it was like, man, that is, that is awesome. I totally want to do that. Um, so my first experience with sort of a group associated with ATA is I think that first year we got invited to a Christmas party that was hosted by a family who I believe was in the first hundred families. ATA was only like three years old at this time. Mm, okay. I think they said that it started in 1984. So we started in 1987. So we were going to this Christmas party at their house. And I think my sister and I had gotten new sweaters. I remember wearing black stretch pants because we were going to go caroling outside and it's cold. And we thought that was appropriate attire to wear caroling outside. I don't remember if my mom asked us like, are you sure? Are you sure you don't want to dress up a little bit more? I don't remember that conversation. I feel like maybe that happened. And I've we were like, this story before. <laughs> we were like, let's wear, you know, these new sweaters or a sweater, or whatever, with our pants, and we'll be comfortable when we go caroling. And we arrive there, and everybody is dressed to the nines in their, you know, Christmas plaid taffeta dresses. Everything is very formal. 
everybody's in their dress shoes. So when we go out caroling, they're slipping and sliding on the ice in their dress <laughs> shoes. They're freezing cold. And the whole night, I remember just feeling very silly, very apologetic, like, well, if I would have known, I would have worn a dress, you know, you follow the rules <laughs> that they had told you. <laughs> and Sarah, Sarah and I texted recently about it. And she's like, yeah, I swore never again. Was I going to go, you know, dressed improperly to an ATA function? Um, and I joked back. I was like, maybe that's why I'm okay. Overdressing wherever I go. I would rather be overdressed than underdressed. <laughs> so that was our first experience that um, group is maybe a little different than what we're used to. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Every day, so you but... weren't total inner circle. Um, you wished you were. I mean, you wished you could be more involved. Yeah. And yeah, for me, it was as we had to stay at home. My brother, who's seven years older than me, was semi-involved and he actually opened up a little bit on a Facebook post and kind of, he, he seemed to downplay a lot of it, but I think it was just because we were so far out of it. He did go to Russia. Um, he, he did go to Moscow with a group from ATA. In what year was that? One. So it was right before communism fell. I want to say it was like two or three months before the whole thing happened. Um, but they went over and did their thing. I think they taught English. They were there for maybe like two or three weeks or did something. I think my brother was kind of the, um, like the initial group to kind of go over and start things. And then they actually got a building and, and built one of their training centers. Mm -hmm. They had training centers all over the place. They had them in Indianapolis. They had them in, in Texas. They talk about it in the, in the, in the film where he would find these government buildings and like get free property and all these things. And they were staffed by kids who were told they're going to be doing apprenticeships and nobody was paid. Um, and it was this massive amount of free slave labor uh, that the amount of Ill illegalities that were happening there, and especially in just labor issues, is just mind blowing. Uh, and one of my support groups, a kid opened up and basically is like, yeah, I used to work at the Indianapolis Training Center. And I had done, he was 17 years old doing like high level HVAC maintenance, wow. elevator maintenance, all of these things. He recalled a, an instance where he would have to work security and would get up at 4.30 and they made him work till 2 a.m. Wow. And like, it was just, and he was 17 doing this like high level union stuff that should be like. <laughs> yeah. There's the, the, someone opened up about like, they mentioned somebody's name and he was like the head of like essentially a brute squad. Like they were head of security at the Indianapolis training center. And there was one kid who just left. Like he left and went to a bus station and was going to go home. Was like, I'm, I'm not doing this. They literally went and found him, threw him into a van, like kidnapped him. You know, like he should have had every right to leave, like whatever. Uh, threw him into this quote prayer room that they would use and they talk about it. And, oh and as I'm watching the, the, the series, it is not overblown. It is not exaggerated. Yeah, I was going to ask. That. So, and, and in reality, a lot of it was downplayed. So like you're watching and thinking, Oh, they've exaggerated. No, the prayer room existed. They literally would throw him in there and they would make you pray. And it was a quiet room for hours on end until you were broken and they would bring you food 
but then you would be escorted from there back to your room. And then the next morning you were back in there six, you know, six o'clock in the morning back in there until you were ready to confess or whatever. And it's not, that, that's not overblown. Like that is exactly yeah. what happened. Yeah. And would have this brute squad that would go around basically, you know, telling you whether or not you're, you're, you weren't dressed correctly or whatever, and would, would punish you if you, you were not. So yeah, it was, it's all real. Yeah. So you convinced your parents, this is the thing. It was Molly's fault. We were just going to make a note of that. <laughs> I mean, we, we were give... 12. What did we know? But yes, right. Yes. Right. And you, your parents were like, well, you guys were pretty good students. Your mom probably yeah. wasn't like, I'm not, not going to have to spend all day teaching them how to read. And I mean, you know, my parents are well-educated. Dad's a doctor. My mom um, was educated to be an English teacher. So that's a very good thing to be knowledgeable about if you're, yeah. you know, teaching your kids high school. Um, and then she was also in debate. Um, so we were getting a full education for sure. Have We went to training. They had a yearly training seminar, a whole week-long training for parents, youth. Um, in Knoxville, Tennessee yearly. I think now they talk about the one that's in um, Texas, Big Sandy. So yeah. that was, that's the equivalent of what I attended. And of course we went to the basic seminar and the advanced seminar in high school. Um, but we did not attend an ATA church. You know, nobody preached out of the big red book to yeah. us. Our activity ramped up. Like as we got to be, we pretty much finished all of our school curriculum by the time we were seniors. Mm -hmm. So my senior year, I traveled to Moscow and this was in 1993. So Moscow hadn't been open more than a couple of years. Uh, I was there for three and a half months and I lived with two, 300 other people on a boat on the Moscow river. We did various ministries. It was during the time that there was the coup on their quote white house, which is just a government building of sorts. I did that. Um, my sister did some other things. Weird story about that. Like you had to be invited and she was not invited. Oh man. And, and so my and you're parents, a twin. So that's yeah. a weird thing. You did so many things together. Yes. And then yes. you were invited and she wasn't. And it's very, very odd. I have questions about that. And it just shows like their weird, the weird ways that they went about their ministry because they told my mom had called headquarters and said, you know, can my other daughter go? They're twins. You know, how come she didn't get invited? And she didn't really get a straight answer that I can recall. And I think they ended up saying like, well, the trip is full. We don't have room. Well, when I arrived in Moscow, they said there were like two young girls that had been invited two days before the trip. Wow. So you're like, okay, there's like a discrepancy there. How come my sister was not able to go? That's yeah, really yeah. strange and odd. And, and we spent our first birthday apart on our 18th birthday. I was in Moscow and she was home. So anyway, that was, I mean, that's a whole, Moscow is a whole experience. It was a positive experience for me for the most part. I mean, it was only, I think, their third year in Moscow. Um, they did not have the Moscow Training Center yet. And so it was this little boat um, of well, people. And you love adventures and being with people and being with friends. Yeah. And so it was like yeah. a whole three months of adventure and yeah. friends. And it like was. It was. And there's, you know, enough normal people that you would kind of find each other and be like, do you wear pants at home? I wear pants at home. Do you wear a swimsuit when you go swimming? I wear a normal <laughs> swimsuit. You, you know, like, it yeah, was like yeah. the funny ways that you like gauged 
who you could relate to and who was safe because you felt like if if like one of the Gothard girls found out that you were normal at home, maybe you'd like get kicked out of the program or get sent home or I don't know. There was a bit of a, you know, I would say it's this prosperity gospel. Yes. uh, That says you do this and this will happen. And also the inverse of like, if something bad has happened, it's probably because you didn't do something right. Or or you, you didn't do something that you, that you should have done, or you did something that you shouldn't have done. So their whole idea of this umbrella of protection, and this is drilled into you from the very beginning that, and, and is it's all patriarchal. The, 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 the father is the head and the there's, and the, maybe the pastor and then God or whatever. And there is this umbrella. If you get anywhere out of it, you are quote rebelling and you are going to basically be zapped. Like it's this, you know, rebelling was a big thing. Like you were a rebellious child, but like their definition of what rebelling is, was literally like you didn't wear the proper skirt. Yeah. Um, and in my family, there was, there was five boys. Yeah. Uh, there was five boys and one girl. And so I think that also made it a little bit different dynamic. I know a lot of families that had more females that really got it bad. Um, the boys are, elevated to a different level it's very clear females are you are going to be a homemaker there is no other choice uh you're either that or you're probably going to be some sort of doula or midwife like that, that was that that's it that's all you got so um you're gonna either be able to do that you're, and you're not even gonna be like an actual doctor that's not a thing you know you're gonna you can maybe deliver babies in a pool you know in a bathtub at somebody's house yeah. probably illegally, but you know, that's, that's, that's the only thing you have. And so f- the boys are not as scrutinized as much, you know, going through the whole Duggar thing. Um, it's interesting is, is they try to make in the docuseries, they try to make it that the Duggars were really this like high level IBLP people. They weren't, we knew of them. Um, they were kind of a poster child and they use it for some marketing, but the Duggars were not high level in IBLP. Like they were not part of that. Then it was just kind of like, they were just a family that was in there and maybe had some influence. They may have talked at conferences. That was a little later on um, from where, but they weren't, they weren't quite there. There were other much horrible people <laughs> that, that ran the, the thing. My, my point being is like in our dynamic with the, with the five boys, it was almost like, you know, I saw my sister get a lot of it, but also my sister was younger. So she was born in 86. Uh, and so by the time she was like seven or eight, my mom started to get sick. And so she, she had gone to some of it, but didn't really have, and she ended up going to, to middle school and high school and, and eventually made it to New York, um, yeah. theater stuff. So it was a very different dynamic for us, but looking at it and seeing like some of the other families that had lots of girls, like the patriarchal system was set up from the very beginning of, you know, you are very clearly less than as a female. How did you, like, what was your, well, I can't think of a better word than journey through thinking through all of the different teachings. And, you know, when did you start like having conversations maybe with your sister or even with your mom or dad saying, can we revisit some of this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, What was that like for you? What was it? When, what did it start? What did it look like? Was it awkward? Was it like a, gradual thing or was all of a sudden like this is crazy well I mean I think with parenting 
some of these things come in stages, you yeah. know, based on a child's maturity and awareness and ability to understand certain concepts. Yeah. So I think there was always this awareness that there are people within the group that um, live a more strict, judgmental, legalistic kind of lifestyle than we did. Um, and we lived a little bit more legalistic lifestyle than some of our mainstream Christian friends con- within yeah, our church. Yeah, there was even, a you know? continuum like, even within right. ATIA. Yeah. So you felt a little bit of camaraderie, like, all right, well, none of us really watch television. That feels nice and safe, you know? Yeah. We don't listen to crazy Christian rock music that, I mean, even from today's standards, some of it was kind of crazy. 80s <laughs> music was weird. <laughs> um, so. You know, so there was like a little bit of camaraderie, like we're in this together, we're different, you know, yeah, and yeah. I think um, going to Christian school, there were a lot of, you know, wealthy kids at the Christian school that we had felt different. So I think that we felt some camaraderie and we felt like we had the similar lifestyle, even if some people were more legalistic than we were. I don't know. You just kind of write it off. like. But I mean, I would imagine your parents sort of rethought some things too along the way because, um, spoiler alert, Christina and her twin ended up not being the only kids in the family. They ended up having two baby sisters that came along later on, um, pretty big gap. And yep. they didn't go through all the ATIA stuff, did they? Um, they were not as involved as we were. Um, my parents stayed in the program through some of the early years of their education. So my sisters are 12 and 14 years younger than us. So they were just itty bitty when we started in ATIA. Yeah. Um, and so I not only went to Moscow, we spent some time at the Indianapolis Training Center. Sarah and I spent two months at the very first Excel, which was the women's girls um, Dallas training center experience for all girls. Um, we have good memories. I mean, some ridiculous memories too. And then we also took a trip to Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm reminiscing with the generation before a little bit and clarifying because now it's like, there's, there's new, like I'm a grown up. I have a new perspective, like mom and dad, what was, what was going on? And then with the younger generation, I'm like, Hey kids, my kids are 24, yeah, 22 and 19. Like, Hey, you guys, you guys need to watch this. Tell me <laughs> if you see that this affected my parenting, like, let's talk about this. Yeah. You know? And so my mom was, was talking to me about, she doesn't, I don't think she's watched it, but, um, you know, talking about like the, the pearls book. And then I cannot remember the name of the book that was about putting your baby on a schedule, like a nursing schedule. wise. I believe that's probably it. And that one was also, um, you know, promoted through ATI. And um, my mom, I don't know, she read it. She probably read it because she just had little babies too at the time. And she was like, how is a baby going to feel safe and loved if you put them on a schedule and don't hold them when they need to be held and feed them when they need to be fed? And so I didn't remember this. I think Sarah did, but my mom wrote letters to headquarters saying, these are not good, healthy parenting books. Like we need to stop promoting this. And of course she did not hear back, you know? And so I think that there was, there was a level in our family of kind of like, we're uncomfortable with some of this, but it, it seems so good to be talking about character qualities and Gothard would say, you know, like, these are the keys to success. Your children will not 
you know, rebel against you and rock music is going to lead them into the occult, probably, you know, like just crazy claims. So I think that there was this continuum of like awareness, the more that we were in it, the more experiences, especially Sarah and I had, I mean, the reports that came back from our trips. Um, I remember reading some of the newsletters from my trip to Moscow after I came back and going, huh, that is very blown out of proportion. And I do not remember half of that stuff happening. You know, it was tough. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, something's, I mean, to this day, it makes me very skeptical about Christian, like, wow stories. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah. I feel the same way. Any Anything that somebody's all like, this is the guru for everything. I'm just like, hmm, I yeah. don't want a guru. I don't, I don't want I that. My conversation with JJ and Christina was too long for just one episode, so I broke it up over two episodes. Make sure to check out the second part in episode 87. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Untangled Faith Podcast. In addition to having two episodes to cover this content, I have saved some of my conversation with JJ and Christina to share exclusively with my Patreon community, so make sure you check that out. You can find that at patreon.com slash untangledfaith. The Patreon community is the primary way this podcast is funded. This is a great time to jump in there to provide support for the show and to access some bonus things I have saved only for my patrons. You can find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes. You can find those on your podcast app or by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com and clicking on episodes. If you're on social media, I'd love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter or Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.